0: As Pastor Bean preached last week on the church, um, all the things that make the church and the things that the church is responsible for, and all those types of things, he mentioned to you at the beginning that he was teaching or preaching a topical sermon. Well, I'm doing the same this morning, which is, I found out, I've never, it's the first one I probably have ever preached. Um, it's always been expositional, going through a book of the Bible. Um, the last time I was here or preached was, I was going through Philippians, and I've gone through the first two chapters, I believe, and uh, it just seems to flow along. I think this was the hardest thing I've ever tried to write because topical sermons, you're trying to tie together the scripture, and you don't want to take things out of context. You want to preach them as they, they truly are intended for, as what they mean. In God's word, but the name of the sermon this morning is What Makes God or What Makes a Man Godly? What makes a man godly? Godliness in our text for first. Well, I have two pieces of text this morning, both from First Timothy. We notice it, it starts out first Timothy that Paul, the Apostle Paul, um, Timothy was like a son to him. Um, Paul was probably the one that preached the gospel that that Timothy heard that converted him during one of his mission trips. And uh, he was raised underneath the teachings of Paul as Paul uh, preached the word as he moved through on his mission journeys. And uh, Timothy is left at Ephesus here. And he's writing this letter to Timothy encouraging him um, against false doctrine. There were false teachers, of course, in that day, as they are today. Um, he was encouraged, and he's also, he was left in charge of the church there, and he's, he gives out a, um, a list of things, or, or he gives out um, things he needed deacons and elders of the church, and he, and he talked about the, the things that would make them eligible to become deacons and elders, the things, the, the characteristics that make up someone that would fill that role. And then he goes on a little bit further, and he talks about godliness. Um, he talks about how his people should be, what they, um, the characteristics that should shine forth to those who are lost, to the, to the lost world. Um, I have two sections of, of scripture we want to go through. The first is uh, 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16. And I'll read through these in the second, is 1 Timothy chapter 4, 6 through 8, and I'll read through these with a few comments and then we'll, we'll begin kind of going through this and breaking it down. Great indeed, we confess, it's the mystery of godliness. And then you've got a colon there, then it starts. And so basically what he's going to do, and it's one of my questions at the end, you're getting your answer right now, so heads up. So you shouldn't miss this. So great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So what is the mystery of godliness? Well, here's your answer. He, capital H, he was manifested in the flesh, speaking of his incarnation, vindicated by the spirit, speaking of his resurrection, seen by angels, proclaiming among the nations, given the gospel, believed on in the world, speaking of his followers, his disciples, Christians, you and I, and taken up in glory, which speaks of his ascension. Man, Paul, in this one verse, goes through the gospel, gives us a truth that that is, that is our salvation. Um, how rich this verse is, I, I just... Um, After I I started on my sermon, you know, you could could preach on this by itself for for many days. You really could. Our second passage is just flip over a chapter to chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. And it says, If you put these things before the brothers, speaking to Timothy and what Timothy should do, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. See, these weren't mere volunteers, but they were rather men called to God to teach the word. He's speaking to people that were trained to do this. Being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed, having nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, or false doctrine, we could say. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And that's what we're going to be talking a good bit about this morning. You see, Timothy was told instead to focus his efforts on personal godliness. The phrasing here specifically refers to teaching and instruction. Training was not simply for knowledge, but rather for godly living. Be doers, as it says in James 1.22, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And In verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. As I sat down, was thinking about how to start this and, and, and how to go about preaching it. Um, prayed many times over it that for discernment from the Holy Spirit on how to approach this and to, to uh, put it in context as best I can and wrap it around godliness. And uh, my hope and my aim is at the end of this that you would know what true godliness is and how you get that godliness, how you obtain it, and how you live it. Um, I thought about I said, this sermon can go in many different ways or directions, with many different intentions. But this morning I want to hone in on what makes a person godly. We should well know that being godly means godlike. And to make things a little complicated, there are some misconceptions that people have pertaining to what a godly person looks like, acts like, and is perceived to be like. Doesn't that kind of nail it for most individuals? We're all about our perception. We're all about people who look, say, look at me, like the Pharisees who play, prayed to loud prayers and seemed to be very religious. Their intent isn't one of pleasing and of worshiping God, but one of worshiping self. They want to dethrone God, and they want to place themselves on the throne. And we have to be careful of that because I believe it's easy as Christians we can get caught into that. And, and we really have to be discerning. And we really have to stay in his word and, and prayer. It's been said that one of the most favorite things people love to hear is their own na- name. Well, I know as Diane knows, if you're a teacher and we both teach elementary age kids, one of the first things you need to do When school starts is to learn their names. The favorite thing anyone loves to hear mostly is their name. Now I'll call some of them buddy and pal and all that for a while until I learn it. But, and they'll look at me kind of crazy or I'll call them different names or made up names. Or I do that with my own daughters here. I'll call one Lauren, I'll get them mixed up. So that happens. But one thing that people love to hear is their own name spoken. You see, we are wired that way. We are me centered. We were born sinners, and so we are me-centered. We are all about us, me, the self, not about the Lord, not about Christ. We tend to look out for number one and being of a pious variety as we are here at Sovereign Grace. Some people, some people disguise it as doing or serving for others and making themselves believe it was ultimately for God's glory. Sometimes we do these things and we do it and we don't even know we do it. It's so ingrained in us. It's so natural for us that we don't even think about it. But ultimately, we're looking out for number one for ourselves instead of for God's glory. We need to be intentional. It says, we need to be intentional Christians. We need to bathe every thought We need to bathe every deed or word said with much prayer and measure it by what the Word of God says. Most so-called Christians believe his outward deeds and perceptions are what make him a Christian because the flesh still reigns in his heart. The flesh still reigns in our heart, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we've been given a new birth, we have a new heart, and he gives us the power to resist temptation and to believe in him and focus upon him and live a life and obey his commandments so that others can see him in us. That's what Christians are. That's who we are. Here's a little... I was looking through and I found this study. I can't even remember who did the study. But it was um, pretty striking to me when I read it. And how accurate it is, I'm not sure, but you know as most studies... Somebody can refute most, most everything they find. But nonetheless, the study found that huge proportions of people, huge proportions, a lot of them, as you'll hear in a minute, associated with churches with official doctrine, official doctrine, says eternal salvation comes only from embracing Jesus Christ as Savior. Believe that a person can qualify for heaven by being or doing good. Their doctrine says otherwise, but they believe differently. That includes close to half of all adults associated with Pentecostal, 46% of them. Protestant, mainline Protestant, 44%. Evangelical, 41%. And of course, our beloved Catholics, 70%. Wow. That just jumps out at me, Um, makes you sad. As a side note, I believe that most individuals do not perceive God as he truly is. They do not see an omniscient, all-knowing, an omnipotent, having infinite power, and an omnipresent God, he's everywhere at all times, who sustains the world with his very hand. We need to consider the fact that he knows our hearts, he knows our thoughts, And he knows what makes us do the things that we do. Romans 3 testifies to the fact that our hearts are evil. He says in verses 11 and 12, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. In verse 12, All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I imagine Paul was thinking of Psalms 14, 1 through 3, when he wrote this as it speaks and says the same thing in the Old Testament. In the Old Covenant, it's nothing new under the sun. The worldly do not understand, it's even by his grace that unbelievers receive what I would call a common grace. Such as shown in the very being of their existence. In our existence, the fact that the rain falls on the good and the bad. That he provides shelter for all, food and so on. Most individuals believe they are good people. And that they do good deeds, and the fact that they attend church is enough for them to enter into the eternal paradise with God Almighty. What a shame and a false teaching that is. It's why the Pharisees had so many laws and traditions that had to be followed to belong to the family of God. I've read where the Pharisees had as many as they took the original ten, ten commandments given to Moses, Mount Sinai, They took those ten and turned them into 613 laws and things. I would say they would be a little bit legalistic, wouldn't you? It's only when the person's soul is effectually changed by the Holy Spirit. Yes. yes, That leads a person to the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ to bring about justification and then henceforth sanctification. We are justified by the work of Jesus on the cross in his burial, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus paid the ransom that we owe as a sinner, that being of death, that allows his people, the church, to receive salvation. You see, all people receive a common grace. God holds this earth up by by his hand, and at any second he could stop it. At Any split second, everything could go away. And, and all would be condemned, but he also have what I call a special or a particular grace in which he has called out a people to himself to be holy, to be set apart, to be godly, to walk in His word, to follow his commandments, to be as Jesus when he came to earth for those 33 years, to be obedient to his Father, even unto death. That's the model. That's who we attain to be like, Christ-like. That's what a godly person is. See, I'm not as fancy as Bill and Ben with their tablets, iPads. and Actually, I tried it, and I just couldn't follow it. It kind of mushed everything together. I've got to practice on that. I'm in training under Bill and Ben in my... Efforts, they're training me. Second piece of uh, scripture that I want us to look at, and it's kind of lengthy, but bear with me. I don't think you can ever go wrong by reading scripture, church. You may want to turn there. I'm sure it'll be on the screen behind me, maybe Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. It's kind of a lengthy uh, piece of scripture. So we'll get started. Therefore, we know it's the person and work of Jesus Christ who has provided the necessary Provisions for one to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's nothing we can do. It's not of us, it's of Christ Jesus. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were born dead in sin. I mean dead, I don't mean half alive, in a coma, sickly, in hospital. No, you were born dead, spiritually, completely, totally dead. Amen. Okay? And in verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, that's what you would be doing, following the course of this world, worshiping idols, doing all the things the pagans do. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Man, aren't you glad that Christ saved you, that he chose you before the beginning of time? as the elect, as the ones to be His children, to be the bride of Christ. I can't understand it. I can't fathom it. I can't wrap my arms around it. Why me? Because there's nothing special about me in any sort of way. Nothing. I wasn't born with anything any more special than anybody else in this room and in the world. God did the work. He chose me. And He chose you, the church. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, and that's another trait of being godly is being one that loves. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And what does that mean, grace? It's a gift. It's not of works. You didn't do anything. He gave it to you. He saved you. You didn't save yourself. Verse 6 "...and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's not because you're good. It's not because you're, you do good deeds and you, you, look, you have a perception among people as being holy and godly and religious." doesn't have anything to do with that. It's because the work that Jesus did upon the cross that washed away your sins, His blood shed, as we're going to uh, have the Lord's table this morning, is what it represents. It's, it's the shedding of blood of Jesus or for remembrance of what He did upon the cross. It's because of that that we're not like these people listed in the above pieces of Scripture here in this chapter. So it says in verse 9, Not as a result of works, So that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. See, it is a works religion. It's just the thing is, Jesus Christ did the works. We didn't. We couldn't do anything. Remember, we were dead. How does a dead person do anything? Go to the graveyard this afternoon and go out and talk to people and see if you can get them to get up and help you do something. I've got some lesson plans to write for school and some work to do, and I might need some people to help me. Instead of getting you, I'll go to the graveyard and get a slew of people and talk to them. They'll come up and help me do something. Isn't that crazy? And people believe that it's by something that they do that saves themselves. Isn't that? It's, it's, it's just, I don't understand it. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You do the good works because you're in Christ. Okay? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, so far we've established that it's the work of God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit by which we receive salvation from this body of sin. So it stands to reason that we provide nothing towards our salvation and that it's an act of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, it pertains to absolutely nothing of us that makes us righteous before our holy God. There is no service or work we could do to obtain righteousness because we are sinners, we are imperfect, we miss the mark. Which is the definition of sin. We're imperfect. It took perfection. It took the perfect man to walk the perfect life, to live the perfect life, being tempted in every way, and to be obedient to his Father, and to be sacrificed, crucified upon that cross. That's what it took to satisfy the wrath of God, to propitiate God, to satisfy his wrath. We, we couldn't do it. You understand that the, the greatest enemy of the unbelievers is God himself. If you think about it, it's God who dislikes, who, who does not, he does not like sin. Thank you, God, for your grace. Romans 1, 19 through 20. I was thinking of, well, you always get that bit about, well, how about those people over there and, such and such country that haven't heard the word yet. What about them? You know, are they held accountable? Or are they just ushered into the kingdom of God? Even though they're worshiping the sun and the moon and all these things? Are they holy? Are they set apart? Romans 1, 19, 20 answers that question. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, what they did was they worshipped the created instead of the creator. They worshipped idols and had silly superstitions. And believe it or not, we're, we're reading this, and Paul wrote this many years ago, obviously. But it's the same today. People do the same thing. But as a Christian, as the church, us, a follower of Christ, one who has been quickened to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to be holy. We are to be set apart and godly in our thoughts and actions. And there ends my introduction. Y'all ready? (laughs) I have four points that I want to go through with you. And the first is discussing the meaning of godliness a little bit more in depth. What is the meaning of godliness? Naturally, it means to be like God or to be Christ-like. That's our sanctification. Once we're justified once, and just like that. And then the rest of our lives, we are sanctified. We are to read his word and to come into knowledge of his word and and live his word, and we're to become more mature. We, as Paul puts it, that some were on milk, and then they, they didn't understand the scriptures and they should have. They couldn't be fed meat because they were too immature. We're to grow from that. We're to become mature in Christ. And how do you do that? By reading his word, by sitting under the preaching of the word every Sunday. And every chance you get by reading of the word and your, your time that you may spend doing other things, we need to spend more time reading his word and studying his word, meditating upon his word, praying on his word. And not only that, but being obedient to it, then, then carrying it out. So that can, does, does, do people, when they look at you, do they see Christ? Or do they just see any old Joe walking down the street? Now, we're not to have this fake piousness about us that, you know, look at me. But I believe a true Christian can be discerned by other individuals. They know there's something different about you. So the answer is through His Holy Word. The Person and Character of God is very prominent throughout the pages of Holy Writ. God's laws are spoken so plainly that even people not of faith understand this. Put as succinctly as possible, Jesus spoke of the laws that should have be should be of utmost importance. He took those ten and those six hundred thirteen that the Pharisees came up with and all the things, and he condensed them down into two. And you know the two. It's in Matthew chapter 22, 36 through forty. He was asked by the Pharisees, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Who in here does that? I can't completely say I do that. But our aim, our intentions, our strivings, our hearts should be set towards that each and every day. Because each and every day that you wake up, it's by the grace of God. And each and every day that you're able to do anything, is by His grace. And then He says, "The second—that's the first commandment." And then a second is like it: "You shall love your neighbor as yourself." On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Think of that: love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, I started off uh, telling you that we were all about number one most of the time. We we seek what benefits us, but we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. You see, if you do these two commandments, if you hold to them, those other ten will take care of themselves. Now, are we perfect in doing this? No, we're not. We still have sin until God comes back, until Jesus comes back and takes us home for the, you know, in his glory. And all things are consummated, all things are done, um, and sin is done away with. We'll, we'll deal with this until then, but we're we'll to stay in His Word and in prayer. Christ fulfilled the law when He descended from heaven, and as He was fully man, and yet simultaneously fully God, He lived a perfect, sinless life with complete obedience to the Father. God's law, you see, emanates His character from His character. His law is not an arbitrary set of rules and regulations devised merely for the governing of human behavior. It is an extension of his absolute holy character. It says in the Bible, we are to be holy for he is holy. If we are of him, if Christ is in us and we are in Christ, then if he is holy, we we should strive to be holy as well. We talked about how we do that. The greatest revelation God gives us concerning his character is that of love. In 1 John 4, he says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And then again in the same chapter, verse 16, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, abides in God, abides in him. So we are to be of love. We are to be about loving one another. We're a church. We come together. We just don't do this arbitrarily. We are drawn by the Spirit. We're to have a love in our hearts for one another. We're to support one another. It says iron sharpens iron. We're to listen to to sound preaching and doctrine. We're to learn that. We're to memorize Scripture. We ought to be able to refute those who, who hold the gospel as not being the true religion, not being the true gospel. We need to be able to refute those that do that. The Bible says that it commands us that. And then remember John 3, 16 through 17. A lot of people love this verse, but for the wrong reason, I believe. But, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, it's all of Christ. The greatest expression of love is humility. We are to be humble and meek as expressed in the Beatitudes, of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5, I believe. It's the first 11 or so verses. Um, basically, our motivations are not, to be, are, are not to be selfless, but godly. He talks to me, goes through those. You can go through them for yourself. I won't take the time this morning. It's a lengthy passage, but man, there's another sermon you can preach. The Apostle Paul gives us a preeminent example though about how to be godly. And it's in Philippians chapter two, verses two through eight. Here's here's how to be godly. Here's how to uphold those two great commandments that Jesus gave us when the Pharisees asked him what the greatest two commandments are. Verse three says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In other words, put others before yourself. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, the ultimate ultimate example of humility. Christ Jesus... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He was fully man, He came to earth. Now he was still divine, but he emptied himself of his glory to be able to come to earth, be able to come and dwell among men so he could walk that perfect, obedient life. And to shed his blood on the cross, payment for our sin, paid the ransom for us, so that we could be in Christ Jesus and be with him eternally. In verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To say it a different way, the meaning of true godliness is to be pure and holy, to be set apart for the glory of God Almighty. So, first point. What it means to be godly point two. is what it means by, and we read the first uh, verse, or First or Timothy 3.16. I'll read it again, and it's the answer to answer that question. I gave you the answer earlier, so we shouldn't miss this one. But in his letter to Timothy, Paul refers to the entire spectrum of salvation as the mysteries of godliness. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus Christ, manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. The gospel. So the mysteries of godliness is whom? Is what? Is whom? Is Jesus Christ himself. Revealed throughout the pages of the new covenant. As Jesus came to the earth. As he as he chose those 12 original disciples and taught them as they walked among themselves. Can't you imagine? Wouldn't you love to have been there even though I, I say that? Then again, I say I, I say not because what a fool I would have been. You know, a lot of times we talk about Adam and Eve and we think, Adam, what were you thinking, dude? You know, what was, what's your problem? We had it made. We were in the Garden of Eden. We, No. More than likely, had I been Adam, I'd have done the same thing. So the question is, what is the mystery of godliness? It's Jesus Christ. It's the answer Pontius Pilate asked Jesus before his crucifixion, recorded in John 18. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Jesus is telling him, I am the truth. Pilate didn't understand this because he didn't have, he didn't discern, he couldn't discern it, he couldn't understand it because he was not in Christ. He was a pagan. You see, We have to have the indwelling Holy Spirit to make these things clear to us, to open our hearts to his word, to quicken us to life. It is a mystery in the sense that the world does not nor cannot understand it because it's spiritually discerned. Another way to say it is the Holy Spirit has to reveal its meaning to you. In John 3, Nicodemus was taught by Jesus himself the mysteries of godliness. Remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and basically asked, what does it mean to be born again? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 clarifies for us what he meant by born of water and Spirit. So there's no guesswork here and no interpretation of my own. Ezekiel, he clarifies it. He's talking about born of water and the Spirit. He says, in this verse, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. That's what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. For by grace you have been saved through faith. We know that. And this is not your own doing. We've been over this. It's a gift of God, not a result of work so that one may boast. It's to believe by faith that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is who he said he is, the Son of God. In 1 John 5, 20, he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know who is true. And we are in him who is true, in the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So there's point number two. So y'all should get that. The mysteries of godliness. Who is it? Jesus Christ. Point three, the manifestation of godliness. Each person that names the name of Christ must depart from iniquity. You agree? Because Jesus tells us, you know, to go and preach the word and and preach repentance and baptism to the lost. They must be convicted by the Holy Spirit of their sin. See, if you're in Christ and you sin, you're convicted of that sin immediately. That's what separates you from the unbeliever. You're convicted of that sin, and then you are to confess it and then to repent from it. They must follow His commandments. A godly person possesses the fruit of the Spirit, as mentioned in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. We've talked about that. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You no longer live for yourself. You live to glorify God Almighty. The reason you were created was for his glory. God's people, the church, should be led by the spirit and not by the flesh. Another manifestation of godliness is being a person of prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, Apostle Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And he says that a couple of times in different pieces of scripture. Pray without ceasing. What does that mean? It means praying all the time. You know you could a lot of times when i'm i'm at work or i'm somewhere and i'm in a difficult spot or maybe in a, in a good spot but i'm always in prayer with god and communication thanking him if it's if it's something good thanking him for his grace and the gifts that he's given me but also in prayer to give me strength to get through the hard times he doesn't necessarily just take them away remember the apostle paul who prayed, he said, you know, he had the thorn in the flesh and he prayed that God would take them from him. And what did God, how did he answer him? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. God's people, the church, should be led by the Spirit. Verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, therefore we're left off, giving thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. In other words, be a Berean. When you hear someone preaching the Word, no matter if it's me, anyone... Test it to make sure it's true. How do you test it? Well, you've got to know the Word of God. How do you know it? Well, you've got to read it. You've got to listen to it preached. You've got to pray over it. The Holy Spirit has to give you discernment. Abstain from every form of evil. In Thessalonians it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. There it is again. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And finally, point four, Y'all been waiting for this for quite a while now, ready for me to get done. It's the measure of godliness. Even though the Christian life is one of godliness, it's not a perfect godlikeness. We're not perfect. We do not measure up completely, which means some may measure up more. While others may measure up less, I'm no Apostle Paul, nor am I a Dick Bill. I told him last Sunday I had to call him out on something. I did. Finally got him. (laughs) Which means some may measure up more than others. We are to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this includes the area of holiness. In 2 Peter, he says, and besides all this, giving all diligence... Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, into knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, into patience godliness, into godliness, brotherly kindness, into brotherly kindness charity, for if you for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, as Paul was on that road to Damascus before. He met jesus on that road in that shining light he was blind he was blinded he couldn't see the scales were over his eyes jesus took them away and gave him eyes to see with and gave him ears to hear with and what great wonders paul did for the church for for christ as he traveled as he he changed about face didn't he 180 degrees completely turn around what a different man he was remember this is the same person this paul i'm talking about apostle paul who stood there at the stoning of Stephen and approved of it. This is the same man. God has the power to change people. The Holy Spirit can quicken you to life and make you a totally different person. There is forgiveness of sin. We have to ask for it. So you should be growing to be more like Christ every day. The intentions of your actions should be to magnify the name of Jesus Christ. We all have different gifts given of God in order to serve Him, so we're to use those gifts in His glory, and that's in 1 Corinthians 12. And there's not a sermon that's complete, and I've heard many sermons in the day, and they left this out, so it's not, they're not complete sermons. I'm sorry, Pastor Bill, Ben, whomever else. If you do not include a quote from Charles Spurgeon in your sermon, you are lacking, you are deficient in your preparation. Just a joke. Charles Spurgeon says this, Those whom free grace chooses, free grace cleanses. We are not chosen because we are holy, but chosen to be holy and being chosen. The purpose is no dead letter, but we we are made to seek after holiness. How deep that is. So we're to be more like Christ each and every day. In chapter 5 of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, Paul admonishes the priest of the day. Paul had just given the credentials, if you will, of Jesus Christ himself as the great high priest. And then says to the people, although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to reteach you the basic principles of God's word. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. These people, these priests, these people he had in place, man, they were trained. They they were trained. They knew the word. They should have known the word. These things, they should have known Jesus was the coming of Jesus and all these things. They they knew that. Old Testament prophecy spoke of it. But their eyes were blinded to it. They were carnal people. They were of themselves. How do we do this? We do this by being of humble mind, by meditating on God's word daily, and by much prayer. To be a godly man or person of Christ, you have to be a person with a discerning mind towards the word of God. The Holy Spirit leads you in this process and convicts you when you stray off course. In summation, know that we are commanded to be holy because God has set us apart to be his people. There is no amount of work that we can do to accomplish this outside of the work that Christ accomplished on the cross at Calvary. Christ has done the work for us. He has redeemed us through his blood shed on the cross. Brothers and sisters, repent of your sin and live a life that glorifies the creator, our God Almighty. Be a godly Christian. Amen.